For the final two lectures of this course, we are going to talk about Aboriginal law. And Aboriginal law is the law that governs how Canadian courts will recognize communally held rights or title that are held by First Nations, by Canada's First Nations. This is distinct from Indigenous law. Indigenous law refers to the laws and customs of these Aboriginal groups themselves. So if you're curious about how you would get married within a Cree legal tradition, that's a question of Indigenous law. If you're curious about whether a marriage that happens within a Cree legal tradition will be recognized by the BC Supreme Court, that's a question of Aboriginal law. And the key questions in Aboriginal law these days are, what are Aboriginal rights? What is Aboriginal title? How do you establish either? And what is the duty to consult? These are all things we'll get at in the next two lectures. We are going to today go through a bit of history, a bit of big picture ideas, and then we are going to talk about four key Aboriginal law cases, Guerin, Sparrow, Vanderpeet, and Silcotine. Before we get into the subject matter, I would like to briefly discuss terminology. You've heard me use the words Aboriginal and Indigenous. These are both words that are commonly used to refer to the same thing. They're general and uh, respectful terms for Canada's First Nation, Métis, and Inuit populations. So while they are used broadly interchangeable in everyday dialogue and discourse, and they're both respectful terms, I have heard uh, some preference for Indigenous, but certainly Aboriginal is not pejorative. They have, as I say, different meanings when it comes to law. Aboriginal law is not the same as Indigenous law. People confuse this, but you want to think, okay, Indigenous law is the law of an Aboriginal group. Aboriginal law is the interaction of that group and its rights with the court system, which is, of course, ultimately a colonial institution, at least in its history. So those two terms, while they are often used interchangeably, have a specific meaning, and I'll use them in that specific way. I will also use a term that is often considered offensive or even derogatory, and that is Indian. Indian is a term that was historically used to refer to Canada's First Nations and the members thereof. I don't use it in my ordinary vocabulary outside of the legal context. However, you do have to use that term at times within a legal framework because it still has legal meaning as it is used in the Constitution and is used in the Indian Act, which is a key piece of legislation concerning Aboriginal law. So the term Indian is used in the Constitution Act 1867 to assign jurisdiction over quote-unquote Indians and lands reserved for Indians to the federal government in Section 91 of the Constitution Act. It's also used in the Constitution Act 1982 in Section 35, which is, as I said in an earlier, an earlier lecture, just outside of the Charter. And Section 35, which we will talk about at length in this course, says, The existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed, but then it goes on to define the Aboriginal peoples of Canada as including the Indian, Inuit, and Métis people of Canada, peoples of Canada. So we will use that term Indian 
in our discussions because it's in the Constitution and it's the name of and it's obviously within the Indian Act. Um, when I use that term, I do not use it, to be abundantly clear, I do not use it with any disrespect intended whatsoever. And when I refer to the group defined as Indian, I refer to them as Canada's First Nations. So First Nations is the equivalent of, of Indian. Inuit is a distinct group within Canada, the Inuit. And Métis, we will talk about next class in some length. Uh, Métis are the descendants of unions between European men, specifically trappers and First Nation women. And this was a group that uh, came into being very early on within the history of the intersection between European and First Nation cultures. And it developed in its own lengthy history, a unique, distinctly Métis culture, which is one of Canada's Aboriginal cultures that is constitutionally guaranteed the protection of its rights. So that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves. We'll talk more about the Métis in the second lecture. But for now, we uh, should recognize that the term Indian, just I'm still talking about definitions, the term Indian is going to be used in no disrespectful way, but because it's in the Constitution and because it's in the Indian Act. I do want to also say at the outset that I focus on Aboriginal law in this course and in these two lectures, and indeed it's it's what I practice uh, most often now, and it's what I know fairly well. Um, I do not focus on Indigenous law, that is the laws and customs and rules of Canada's First Nations and Métis and Inuit populations, I don't do that not out of any disrespect or any lack of interest or to suggest that it's not a, a eminently worthy topic for uh, a deep study. It's outside of the scope of this course, which is focusing on the framework of the Canadian government as it is usually described and has been described for quite some time. I think that this course in 10-15 years will probably have a much greater focus on Indigenous law and a much greater focus on the areas where Indigenous legal jurisdiction will apply and, and some features of that. And I think that there may have to be some changes to the structure of the courts and perhaps the constitutional reach of the legislatures in order to provide jurisdiction for Indigenous law to apply in areas where it ought to apply. And I think it's a, an area that's going to be the subject, hopefully, of, of positive change in the coming years and decades. However, at this point, um, it, this is an idea that's still very much in its infancy. And so what we're just focusing on is Aboriginal law, the, the sort of the recognition within the current framework, rather than delving into specific Indigenous legal frameworks. I would highly recommend, though, that if this is interesting to you, or just if you were interested in learning more about law and how people govern and relate to each other and resolve disputes, if you're interested in that on a sort of a fundamental level, and really we all ought to be because the law is constantly changing and it's our job as lawyers to help it evolve and to help it grow and to draw inspiration from you know, wisdom in every place that it can be found. And there's great, great wisdom to be drawn from Indigenous legal traditions. I would highly recommend that people take some time to engage with and learn about Indigenous law as it is practiced and taught by the First Nations of Canada, by the Métis, by the Inuit as well. 
I'd highly recommend the work of John Burroughs in that regard. John Burroughs is a University of Victoria law professor who writes just beautifully and uh, has written recently a a wonderful book about um, what can be learned from indigenous legal systems uh, in a, in a, it's a book called Laws, Indigenous Ethics, and the framework of it is that there are seven gifts that are being offered by um, indigenous law and the gift of love, truth, bravery, humility, wisdom, honesty, and respect. And he, as I say, he writes beautifully. The topic is fascinating, and I would highly recommend that people do take the time to think about and delve into indigenous legal systems and traditions and customs and um, and learn about how these are being administered today as well. I mean, these are living legal systems. They're not frozen in time. It's not a historical artifact of, you know, how things were 300 years ago. This is uh, living and adapting and growing and changing legal system that has force in Canada, which is vastly understudied and which has many solutions that could be learned from to a variety of problems that uh, plague you know Canada and, and and Canadian law and Canadian courts so I would just put that put that out there um, so with that I now want to delve into a bit of history before we get into the more doctrine and cases of, of Aboriginal law, because it is important if you're going to think about and understand Aboriginal law to know a bit about the very dark and very shameful history of Canada's treatment of its Aboriginal population. If we go way back, the first contact between First Nations in Canada and Europeans, the first recorded contact, would have happened in the um, 1500s when there were fishing boats that were working off the coast of Newfoundland, European fishing boats. They would uh, come out to the shore to dry fish before the long journey back to Europe and friendly relations with the local First Nations were a recorded feature of that time. As the decades and centuries went on, there started to be increasing European presence in North America, uh, writ large. And of course, the British and French were both um, establishing footholds in North America there wasn't a, a border. It wasn't a, um, you know, there wasn't the United States and Canada, obviously, at that time. There was the British region and there was the French region and some small colonies in the United States. Um, and the majority of the Europeans who were in what is now Canada uh, for a period were engaging in trapping. There was a fierce demand in Europe for furs, beaver furs in particular, to make these very popular hats. And so there was a economic incentive for people to come to what is now Canada from Europe and to trade with the First Nations in order to acquire pelts for these hats. And this interaction between English and French fur traders and some First Nations in Canada is, as I I mentioned at the outset, uh, the start of the process that led to the development of the distinct Métis culture within Canada. And it was also a period where grading on the curve as against how things were going to go, relations were good. There was an economic incentive to get along with the First Nations. Um, There was a population imbalance where, despite the fact there was some significant disease, there were 
large numbers of, of First Nation peoples and relatively few Europeans. And the First Nations had a strong military might. They, they would have had no problem, I, I don't expect, um, handling the English and French trappers were they to try to cause trouble. So it was a, a period of relative um, peace as compared to, to what would follow. So moving through um, into the 18th century, you had a great war in Europe, which actually spread across most of the globe. I mean, it's kind of the first truly world war, the Seven Years' War, which was sort of England and friends versus France and friends. And this was between 1756 and 1763. And there were fronts in this war, you know, all across the globe, including in North America, where the English and some First Nations that they allied themselves with fought with the French who had allied themselves with other First Nations. So there was a there's military alliances that were happening during this French and Indian War. And the phrase French and Indian War is from a very British perspective. It's the British fighting against the French, you know, with the assistance of the quote unquote Indians. And so you had the this war, it went on for uh, seven years. There you go. That's an easy one to remember. Uh, and it concluded in 1763 with the British victorious. And the British took over in what is now Canada. They took over the area that had previously been New France. And we talked a bit about this with the imposition of uh, the common law in that area for about 10 years, and then that quick backtracking to allow civil law to take hold in, in what is now Quebec and the you know, repercussions of that we've, we've talked about a number of times in this course. Another component, though, of that conclusion to the French and Indian War and the Seven Years' War, which the same thing. I mean, there's, um, they coincided with each other and they were part of the same global conflict was the issuance of the Royal Proclamation of 1763. And this was where King George III, the United Kingdom, you know, the British monarch said that the First Nation peoples who are outside of the area that's currently, you know, been settled uh, by Europeans will be unmolested, you know, will leave them alone. And furthermore, that um, individual people are forbidden from uh, acquiring their land, rather that if someone's going to deal with these First Nations, they will have to be dealt with through the crown, through the, through the government. Um, so this proclamation has some serious effects where we're going to talk about going forward. So it includes a recognition then of the title and the, the rights that are held by these First Nation people, that they are not going to be molested and interfered with, and that they are, you know, implicitly they're nations who are to be dealt with through diplomacy, through the crown engaging with them, not through individuals, you know, just as one person isn't to go and, you know, acquire part of another country, that's that's the job of a government. You're not to go, you know, negotiate and claim uh, a bit of land to expand Canada. You, um, you have a similar conception that the First Nations are not to be dealt with by individuals, but are to be dealt with through the crown, through the, through the state. So just Jumping ahead, the, the first thought on what is the legal status of Canada's Aboriginal peoples when you got to Aboriginal law was a case called St. Catherine's Milling, which was a case from the you know, late 19th century as Privy Council. And the Privy Council talked about the Royal Proclamation and described it as creating Aboriginal title. 
through this royal proclamation. So we're going to talk a lot about the nature of sovereignty and um, sort of where the crown gets a right vis-a-vis First Nation people, if at all. And this theory, the, the theory that latches on to the royal proclamation and was the St. Catherine's Milling case, this theory is that where does that come from? Where does Aboriginal title come from? Well, it was granted by the king in the royal proclamation of 1763. Now, there's a corollary. If the, if the king had the power to grant it, the power can also be taken away and further, or sorry, the, uh, the right can be taken away. So if the, if the source of Aboriginal rights is the King of England gave them to Aboriginal peoples, well, then the king can take them away also is the, would be the theory. And that would be consistent with the idea of sort of radical power of the sovereign that we've talked about. And we've talked about how this was held by the crown and then held by parliament you know, we're going to come back to these ideas of sovereignty and Canada's First Nations. They're very troubling, and they're, frankly, where the law is at in relation to these ideas is unsatisfying. But I just want to sort of, I mentioned this royal proclamation within the context of this narrative, and I want to underscore it by mentioning how it's been interpreted as the source of Aboriginal title in the St. Catherine's Milling case. And we'll get to shortly sort of how that, um, how and when that idea was abandoned, but also how there's a theoretical void that's sort of been left in its wake. Okay, so leaving that uh, little aside aside, moving back to the, to the history. So up until this royal proclamation, the story is, you know, on the balance, not nearly as negative as it's going to become. We move into the 19th century and things start getting a lot worse very quickly for Canada's First Nations. You have a move in economy. So previously, you could think of Canada as having you know, basically a fur economy. People are coming to get those beaver pelts and to ship them back to England for those hats. And, you know, it's, it's, there's some money to be made and, and things are moving relatively smoothly. By the 1800s, it is becoming agriculture. It is becoming uh, some resource extraction, some lumber. So you're starting to see much greater land use. This is no longer just, you know, let's come and trap some animals and and leave. This is, you know, we're changing the landscape. We need the land. And this is starting to cause tension and friction and violence and problems with the First Nations who are there, who have been using this land since time immemorial. Now, with this increased land use comes increased people. With this increased people comes disease. And so you have huge populations of Canada's First Nations who are dying from disease. You know, you think smallpox, you think other, you know, horrible diseases that there's no natural immunity amongst the populations for because they've been introduced to the population from Europe. And so you have this very quick change in the dynamics of the demographics. No longer is Canada, you know, most of the people in what is now Canada First Nation, you're starting to have areas where there's um, Europeans outnumbering First Nation people. In 1812, in what is Ontario, it was all of a sudden something like 10 to 1 uh, settlers outnumbering Indigenous peoples. And then as you move, as I said, as you move on to this timber, mineral, agriculture, you need this land. And there starts to be this view that the indigenous peoples are no longer an economic partner who's helping with the furs and helping with uh, your, your, your business and your, your goals, but rather it's an impediment to progress. It's seen as, well, if we just had this pesky group out of here, then we could, you know, go ahead and, and do our, um, our agriculture and our mining. And so there's another source of tension, another source of 
what's ultimately going to be, you know, significant, the significant violence which is going to come. Then, somewhat ironically, another cause of this diminishing and deteriorating relationship between indigenous peoples and settlers was peace in Europe, peace between the French and the English. When there had been military conflict between the French and the English, there was an incentive for both the French and the English to form alliances with powerful First Nations. They needed their help militarily. That led to a need to treat them fairly. Well, with peace, that incentive went away. So it's another reason for a diminishment of the European interest in positive relationships with Canada's First Nations. And then finally, in this 18th century, or 1800s, the 19th century, you see a wide prevalence of brutally racist ideology in Europe. This is the time of um, a real growing view of white supremacy and a dehumanization of anyone who is not white. And the effect of that is to cause a, a rationale for a policy of dominance and assimilation. You know, if, if this European culture and persons and race is so superior, then the idea is, well, there's a natural order of things and, and, and the Europeans will be on top. And furthermore, um, the greatest gift that the Europeans could give would be to assimilate these you know, these peoples into European culture, that's, that's sort of the idea. So that's, that's a factor that's developing in the 19th century. So when you combine these four factors together, what you get is a worsening of the relationship between the First Nations and the settlers. In the middle of the 19th century, we get, of course, Canada. We get the Act of Confederation. We get the Constitution Act 1867. And the Constitution Act 1867, you know, accounts for Canada's First Nations by assigning exclusive jurisdiction over Indians and lands reserved for Indians to the federal government. And this was, in a way, there's some people have, uh, have said, and I think it's probably accurate, this was a effort to have Canada's First Nations dealt with in a manner sort of consistent with the idea of the royal proclamation from just about a hundred years earlier, which is well, you'll go through the crown if you're going to deal with the First Nations, and the centralized federal crown in Ottawa would be the one to to deal with this, to sort of take the role of the of the crown of the king in the royal proclamation, and so the. Perhaps the architecture that was in mind was that this would allow for First Nations to continue to live in a manner that would be at least not affected by provincial law, which would be where the, you know, the property and civil rights, all the, the, the law that would affect your day-to-day would be provincial, uh, but the federal government would deal with the First Nations and perhaps allow a greater degree of autonomy is the idea. But the... What ended up happening is the federal government made a law which effectively incorporates provincial law into federal law and says, you know, provincial laws of general application will be binding on Canada's First Nations, thereby causing these First Nations to be bound by a wide array of of European-based, you know, colonial laws. And this has caused some, uh, including John Burroughs, who I mentioned earlier, to say, well, this is kind of a second colonialism. This is a second act of colonization that happened to Canada's First Nations, where you have the basic premise that this United Kingdom, uh, the British are going to declare that they own all the land and that they are in charge. That's an act of, of colonialism. But then to say, okay, we'll say that, and there's this other legislation, this other government, 
who we're going to also say can pass any law in relation to you. And in fact, while we aren't really concerned with the day-to-day operations around here, uh, they are, and you have to listen to everything they say. You know, so there's this idea that the application of provincial law to Canada's First Nations is a second act of colonialism, in addition to the basic premise of, of declaring that you know, these groups are going to be now subject to the laws of England in general. So you have, coming back to our historical narrative with our little, another little legal detour, you have this idea in 1867 that there's now a Canada. Um, it consists of four provinces. If you look at a map, it is much different than what you would have you know, seen if you looked at a map today. But the the framework accounts for Canada's First Nations and provides exclusive jurisdiction to the federal government. So then between 1871 and 1920, you have the era of the numbered treaties. And this is where there were treaty commissioners who would go and they would enter into these treaties with various First Nations, and the treaties would apply to more than one First Nation. And generally, it was the case that once there was an area that was of interest to Canada for some resource or settlement purpose, then they would send treaty commissioners out, they'd have some some money, and they would go and have the uh, treaty signing um, you know, sort of expedition and go get First Nations to sign to treaties. And these cover a lot of Canada, uh, Northern Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, parts of the Yukon and the Northwest Territories, and Northeastern British Columbia. The First Nations in these treaties, you know, on the text of the treaties themselves, give up their land and all their rights to the crown. The language is seed, yield up, release, and surrender. In exchange, they get reserves or promises of reserves and specific benefits like farm equipment, animals, ammunition, clothing, hunting, fishing rights, and and some money payments. Um, There's other promises that are made, like maintaining schools on reserve and providing teachers and medicine. But the the meaning of these treaties has been a source of considerable conflict and still is. And the, the basic story is that the deal that is supposedly struck makes no sense from the First Nations perspective. The, the benefits provided are, are so minimal and then are almost immediately ignored in, in many cases or are given the uh, most limited interpretation. Like if a treaty says that every member of the band will be paid you know, some, number of, some amount of money, so $5 or whatever, then Canada says, okay, well, five dollars a year, there it is, and you know, a hundred years later, is still has that position that five dollars a year is what is what is owed. You know, basic things like like inflation, not even coming into implementation of the treaties, and furthermore, often the treaties are just forgotten. I mean, just given no accord whatsoever in the first you know seventy or eighty years of their existence. There are judges who question whether they're legally binding in any way, shape, or form. So there's this this history of, of poor application, deliberately poor application, frankly, abuse occasioned through these treaties. And the questions around how they ought to be interpreted you know, remain live to this day. That's, in fact... Um, you know, what I work on most of the time now is, is a big treaty interpretation case. And uh, maybe I'll speak on it a bit during our group discussions if people are interested. So numbered treaties are thought of by many First Nations as an agreement to share land and to avoid conflict. They're interpreted as you gave up all your rights and maybe we have to give you a bit of money and some ammunition and fishing gear. I mean, that's that's a bit simplistic, but it's not probably that unfair of a articulation. So the historical treaties sort of wind up in the 1920s. And as I mentioned, they don't get to most of British Columbia. Most of British Columbia 
has never been subject to a treaty. At the beginning of the course, you know, traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Coast Salish people. Unceded. There never was a treaty. Now, I, you know, I question, honestly, in the land acknowledgement, the emphasis on unceded, because I'm not even certain that it's, it's fair to make ceded a sort of definitional component of some First Nations vis-a-vis other First Nations, because I think many of the treaty First Nations would say, we never ceded, we never, there's never a conflict, and we didn't surrender at the end. We, we are, were a nation that entered into a treaty, but that wasn't a, a treaty of surrender, and it wasn't a, you know, we weren't defeated militarily. It was a friendship treaty between two nations, and we didn't cede anything. We didn't, you know, so there's, anyways, leaving that aside, though, British Columbia, you have very little of it outside of the Northeast is currently subject to treaties, and that leaves the room for this common law Aboriginal title, which we'll get to in the next component of today's lecture. So continuing my historical run through and trying to avoid too many of these legal detours because I was getting kind of excited and off track, perhaps, you have um, sort of an end to the numbered treaties around 1920, and you have, this coincides with a... Um, a very dark period that we'll, we'll talk about in a second where just horrible atrocities happen to Canada's First Nations. To quickly tie the bow on the treaty process, beginning in 1973, you have a, a new treaty process, comprehensive claims, which are settled by negotiation and, and allow First Nations to um, acquire certain rights over their traditional territories. And this has evolved into a, a modern treaty formation process. And you have now, in recent years, uh, more modern, comprehensive land claims agreements, which are you know, much more uh, fair and detailed and have real compensation offered to First Nations. And there is a very interesting idea, which is uh, that all First Nations, regardless of when they sign a treaty, ought to be able to get the best deal that's on offer. It's sort of the same as a most favored nation status within international diplomacy, but I'll leave that aside. Um, it's an interesting idea. I'd be happy to talk about in the discussion. So taking that as sort of a, a run through the treaty history, we have the number of treaties and you have a period of no treaties. Then you have more modern, more fair agreements that sort of start in the 70s and continue on through to today, I want to talk a bit about the Indian Act. Uh, and this is going back in time. This is going back to 1876. And the Indian Act is still in force. I mean, it's been greatly changed, but it's still in force today. And it is what governs the rights of Canada's First Nations within the federal system and is the source of much of the discrimination and violence that was done to Canada's First Nations. So you really can't underestimate the harm that was done by the Indian Act to Canada's First Nations. So passed in 1876, many amendments, 1887, so you know, 10 years into it, you have John A. Macdonald, Scotsman, first Prime Minister of Canada. John A. Macdonald says in 1887, The great aim of our legislation, that is the Indian Act, has been to do away with the tribal system and assimilate the Indian people in all respects with the other inhabitants of the Dominion as speedily as they are fit to change. So what's the purpose of the Indian Act? to do away with First Nations culture and to assimilate First Nations within the British system. And this is explicitly said by the Prime Minister of Canada. It gives vast powers over the identity of who is a 
First Nation, there's this concept of status under the Indian Act. It imposes political structures on First Nations. It deals with cultural practices and education. It sets aside reserve lands. It allows the Crown to administer these reserve lands on behalf of the quote-unquote Indians through representatives of the Minister of Indian Affairs, and these would be the Indian agents who exercised, frankly, dictatorial-type powers over the reserves at times. And the the list of, of things that the Indian Act does that make one shudder is, is frankly, hard to fathom. Uh, and this is, every year when I do this lecture, the Indian Act is, is worse in retrospect than I even remembered it. So the Indian Act, for example, it, it would rename individuals with European names. So if you didn't have a European name, you would, you would get one under the Indian Act. It imposed the band council system, which is hugely important. And what this means is regardless of what your traditional structure of organization was for your First Nation, the Indian Act imposed a elected system where you'd have a, a council with, frankly, sometimes limited powers, but regardless, powers nonetheless. And it didn't matter if the system of electing counselors was wholly foreign to the group. It was, it was imposed. And so this is where you would get this idea of a hereditary chief, which you'll, you'll see if you follow Canadian First Nations current uh, issues, where there will be someone who can claim that under the laws of the First Nations, say under the Cree law, you know, I am the chief and I'm in, I have the authority to speak for this group. But if that person doesn't have the power under the Indian Act, vis-a-vis the band council system, then they're not going to be recognized by the federal government as being in charge. And before you think, well, you know, the democracy, at least as a democratic system, well, it's not. The system that was imposed, for example, denied women the right to vote within the band council system and certainly the right to act as counselors or chiefs for a very long time. And this was the case, notwithstanding there were matrilineal First Nations, First Nations where women were in charge or held positions of power. Nevertheless, band council, now you couldn't even vote, couldn't even, uh, couldn't even hold an office. The repercussions of the band council system are still being felt today. There's still the band system in place for First Nations today, despite the fact that it was imposed and it has interfered with the First Nations' ability to manage affairs pursuant to their laws and customs and traditions. On the question of these sort of voting rights, generally, if you were registered under the Indian Act, that is, you had status under the Indian Act, which entitled you to take certain benefits under the Indian Act, you did not have the right to vote in Canadian federal elections. This lasted until 1960. So until 1960, if you were registered under the Indian Act, you could not vote in Canadian federal elections. This is not ancient history. I mean, if, if someone's 60 years old today, they were born under that system. So to make matters even worse, there was this system of enfranchisement, where, which is a bit of a cruel euphemism because enfranchisement usually has positive connotations to give someone the right to vote, to enfranchise. However, under the Indian Act system, it was anything but positive. You were enfranchised, quote-unquote, given a right to vote federally, when you had your status under the Indian Act stripped away from you. And you could lose status in many ways. For example, if you were a woman with status under the Indian Act, if you married a man without status, you lose your status. The vice versa was not true. If you were a man with status and you married a woman without status, you did not lose your status. Your children, if you didn't have status, wouldn't acquire status. So 
if your mother had status and then married a non-Indian man, the man without status, you wouldn't have status. If the rules have been reversed and you happen to have a father with status and a mother without status, then you would have status and could pass that on to your kids. There is a recent Supreme Court of Canada case dealing with the repercussions of this, Matson and Andrews. I, I won't get into it, but it's you know, it's fascinating because the discriminatory effects of of this cyst of this law linger today. There's still a bunch of people who would have status and, and rights pursuant to that status if the law hadn't historically discriminated against women. You didn't lose status, though, just through this marriage. You lost status if you graduated from university. Oh, you've graduated from university. Congratulations. You're no longer an Indian, quote-unquote, with status. You uh, you can vote federally, but you don't have these benefits anymore, and you're removed from the system, the community that you, you know, grew up in. If you became a minister, if you achieved a professional designation as a doctor or a lawyer, you lost status. The Indian Act forbade speaking of native languages. It made it forbidden to practice traditional religions. It banned cultural ceremonies like the potlatch. And as I mentioned, these Indian agents were you know, de facto rulers, dictators effectively, on reserves. It was illegal for somebody with status to sell or produce goods without the written permission of the local Indian agent. So you, you couldn't, if you produced something, you couldn't go just sell it in town, in a local city, unless you got written permission from the local Indian agent. And of course there was rampant corruption with that. You had to get permission from the Indian agent to leave the reserve at all for quite a long period. There's a phrase that you might hear oh, so-and-so has gone off the reservation. Well, that's where it comes from. It's, it's a very racist phrase that we ought not to say. Now, getting something from the Indian agent was not a simple matter. This isn't, you don't call him up, you don't send him an email, you don't send him a fax. Sometimes this, this meant days of travel on foot to try to see if you could find the Indian agent and, and hopefully he's he's there. Hopefully he hasn't gone away for a day, a week, a month, or whatever. And if he's gone, well, there's not much you can do. You know, you could be arrested if you leave. In, in 1927, there was an amendment in the face of some lawsuits brought by First Nations. And the amendment simply said it will be illegal for First Nation peoples and communities to hire lawyers or bring about land claims against the government without the government's consent. It said, you, you want to bring a claim against us, you'll have to ask us first, and we might say no. So this Indian Act just imposes a brutal set of repressive laws with the express aim at the outset of assimilation and to wipe out First Nations culture, and that, that's what was the goal. That was the express goal. Perhaps the most effective thing that was done in order to wipe out First Nations culture was also a creation of the Indian Act, and that is the residential school system. So the concept of residential schools, it's what we're going to talk about now is horrific. It's horrific. Um, it's hard. So it starts in 1830. There's a residential school in what is now Ontario, accepting boarding students to... But the system ramps up and... By the 1880s, there's a number of these schools. By 1920, there's an amendment to the Indian Act making it mandatory for all Native children between ages 7 and 15 to attend residential schools. And at the time, the head of the Department of Indian Affairs, Duncan Scott, says, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that's not been absorbed into the body politic and there's no Indian question and no Indian apartment and this whole object and that and this is the whole object of the bill and so these schools would take students children between 7 and, and 15 and you would live far away from your 
home and you would be forbidden from speaking your native language or engaging in any traditional culture. And the conditions were truly atrocious. Sexual abuse was rampant at the schools, as was disease, and as was death. Uh, six, 6,000 children died. 6,000 children died at these schools. And 150,000 children were taken from their families at age seven, at age eight, and sent to these schools. There were over 130 of these schools that operated. At one point, there were 80 of them. And the last residential school closed in 1996. This is very recent. I've spoken with residential school survivors and the stories are just, it's hard to fathom. Um, I spoke to one woman in her 90s, um, Helen, and she told me about how she was never permitted or never left the residential school from when she went there when she was about seven until she was about 16. Now it had, it was possible to leave for Christmas and the summers, but she had a less than ideal father and nobody ever came to get her. So she stayed there. She told some stories I won't repeat. And then she told about how when she was leaving, she had $10 to her name and how the priest who ran the school, and these were run by Catholic priests, how the priest who ran the school asked her if she had any money when she was leaving. And she said, yes, I have $10. And he said, that's good because you owe me $5. And so of course she didn't owe him anything, he, but he took half her money as she left and she left to go make her way in the world with so it's it's a horrible horrible legacy in canadian history the the schools had overcrowding poor sanitation poor heating lack of medical care and high rates of influenza and tuberculosis in one school once the death rate reached 69% of the Students who went there that year died. There's severe emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. There's been thousands of lawsuits filed by survivors of residential schools. And in 2005, the federal government agreed to compensate all survivors. There's been a, a, an apology uh, said by Prime Minister Harper in the House of Commons. And I'll play a little bit of that apology. Mr. Speaker, I stand before you today to offer an apology to former students of Indian residential schools. The treatment of children in Indian residential schools is a sad chapter in our history. In the 1870s, the federal government, partly in order to meet its obligations to educate Aboriginal children, began to play a role in the development and administration of these schools. Two primary objectives of the residential school system were to remove and isolate children from the influence of their home, families, traditions, and cultures, and to assimilate them into the dominant culture. These objectives were based on the assumption that Aboriginal cultures and spiritual beliefs were inferior and unequal. Indeed, some saw it, as was infamously said, to kill the Indian in the child. Today we recognize that this policy of assimilation was wrong, has caused great harm, and has no place in our country. The Government of Canada built an educational system in which very young children were often forcibly removed from their homes, often taken far from their communities. Many were inadequately fed, clothed, and housed. All were deprived 
of the care and nurturing of their parents, grandparents, and communities. First Nations, Inuit, and Métis languages and cultural practices were prohibited in these schools. Tragically, some of these children died while attending residential schools, and others never returned home. The government now recognizes that the consequences of the Indian residential schools policy were profoundly negative, and that this policy has had a lasting and damaging impact on Aboriginal culture, heritage, and language. While some former students have spoken positively about their experiences at residential schools, these stories are far overshadowed by tragic accounts of the emotional, physical, and sexual abuse and neglect of helpless children and their separation from powerless families and communities. So the same um, movement that led to the settlement of so the payment of some money to residential school survivors also led to the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which sought to grapple with the legacy of residential schools. And the, the final report of the Truth and, Gener and Reconciliation Commission details abuses. It describes a, a cultural genocide it makes 94 specific calls to action urged upon all levels of government. And it urges all levels of government, federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal, Indigenous, to work together to repair the harm caused by residential schools and to move forward. And to say there's a lot of work that remains to be done is a massive understatement. There's other atrocities that I, I don't even mention in this introductory lecture um, yet. Uh, the 60s scoop was a policy whereby First Nations children were forcibly removed from their families and placed into adoptive or foster care situations. So I'm trying to keep myself together, but it's like, I just, I've got kids and you just it's, you can't imagine having someone take your kid away from you. It just is beyond the pale. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to grapple with the ongoing legacy of the residential schools, the 60s scoop, the band council system, and the attempt at cultural genocide, the attempt at eradicating the culture of First Nations and that attempt failed. I mean, did it do enormous damage? Absolutely. Did it work? No. So the resilience is just awe-inspiring. And um, you know, you're left with great hope that, um, that there's still a potential for Canada to deal meaningfully with its awful past and still have a chance at the vibrant future that is still a, a potential where people from all over the world can come to Canada and live in a, a community that is embracing of Indigenous culture, guided by and led by Indigenous culture, perhaps, and, and truly have a you know, unique human experience. But there's a lot of work to do. And, and so um, I, I provide this sort of overview because I think it's deeply important to the understanding of what I'm going to cover in the balance of the next two lectures. And because I think it's very important for anybody who's going to be practicing law in Canada to have an idea of these things that have happened. Um, plainly, though, this is not my story to tell. Um, I'm a settler just like so many others, um, but I do think it's all of our duties to hear and to learn uh, and to know. So I would, I would hope that you would not only try to take this information uh, as a 
as a starting point, but but really delve deeper into this history and into you know what I think ultimately is a, an exciting thing now. I mean, when you look at the remarkable um, culture and ideas and art and music and wisdom and stories that are ready to be shared, you know, notwithstanding all this history. Um, it's, it's truly remarkable. So I'll leave it there for this first introductory podcast. And we'll come in the second part of today's podcast. Um, we'll get into the cases and, and, um, learn a bit about the legal framework of Aboriginal law.